I was, you know, a little disappointed at first for for a day or two when it sounded like everything was going to get canceled. And then, you know, like everything else, it's just like it's it, that's that's life now. You're you're disappointed by some <laughs> bad development, and then you go on. And um, you know, I, I ended up enjoying doing a lot of these um, these Zoom conversations, and uh, at least if if she's any judge of it, my wife was telling me that she thinks that those conversations have been more in depth and more kind of revealing than when I'm forced to sit on a stage in front of an audience and I get kind of self-conscious. So, you know, maybe the quality of the, of the chats have been, has been better, you know, the, the experience might not be as fun for people to, you know, when they, it's not like a social event to go, to go to or something, but if it's just the actual, you know, content and information, I, th- I think they've actually been better in a lot of ways. Do you get the sense that you might have shut down even further because this is such a, a personal book for you? Definitely. Yeah. I was worried about the uh, promotion for this book. Um, you know, like uh, with my previous book, Killing and Dying, it felt like I just had to go out on stage and talk about other people, like these made up characters and everything. And it wasn't um, that introspective, uh, at least when I was trying to talk about the book. But with this, there was going to be no escaping it. And we had a pretty extensive tour planned all across the country and some international stuff. And I really thought I was going to have that experience of living through what, again, like what a lot of the book is about. And like I would go to like a poorly attended event and have to talk about my comic about going to poorly attended events or something like that. You know, I sort of dreaded the, uh, the Q&A where I sort of opened myself up to a lot of, I, I, I assumed I would get a lot of, I'd be put on the spot a lot about asking about who some of the characters in the book were or what some of the scratched out names were or something like that. And I was trying to prep myself for how to how to handle that. Is that rational anxiety that you have as far as these kind of sparsely attended shows? Is that just something that never goes away when you're a cartoonist at a certain level? I've heard from a lot of people since this book came out who are not just cartoonists, but um, various people who are um, obligated to occasionally show up and get up in front of a crowd, whether they're musicians or authors or, or whatever. And um, a lot of what I heard from people is just that you're never safe, you know, like you could have a best-selling novel or something and you could have 10 incredible standing room only events. And for whatever reason, one city you get to, and there's just no one there, you know, it just, it's always a roll of the dice uh, till the day you die. I think. Is there a way to kind of deal with that and have it not be completely demoralizing? I mean, at the very least, like you must know that if tonight in Columbus was bad then maybe tomorrow in Cincinnati will be better. Yeah, I think maybe that's that's the mark of a true pro. Like I've heard stories of uh, people showing up and there's just like a small smattering of people. And instead of awkwardly proceeding, they gather up and go to a bar together or something like that. Uh, or you just sort of get through it and, and just move on to the next one. But for me, it's it's very difficult. Like I always, I've tried to describe it like when I'm, it's funny that I've done this book now kind of depicting a lot of these events because when I was living through those events, I actually felt as if someone was watching me and observing it, almost kind of like a Truman Show kind of thing. And so it wasn't just the pain of walking in and seeing a sparsely attended room, uh, but it was almost as if there was some audience who was at a remove watching that happen to me and, and, and 
taking pity on me or something like that. In the early days, at least when you experience something like that, it must feel like, you know, you're paying your dues. And, and I suspect that, you know, you have a couple of books out and, and the aggregate of things over time start to, to look a little bit better. This is actually a conversation I have a lot with a lot of indie musicians where they get to a certain point in their career and they're just like, I don't know if my audience is just getting older and they've got kids and they didn't want to come out. I don't know if people just aren't going to indie shows anymore and like, and really sort of trying to divorce the personal experience from these larger issues of, you know, of people maybe just not coming out to bookstores. Yeah. And I, I mean, it's true. I think there's definitely, I'm of a generation of creative people, you know, musicians, writers who you know, you hope your audience ages with you to a degree. You hope to find some new new readers or new audience members, but it's nice if you have this core group that ages with you. And as an audience member myself, I know I just go out a lot less and I just don't enjoy standing up in, in rock clubs for four hours anymore. And so I'm 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 part of the problem too. I like I, I, I attend things a lot a lot less than than, than I used to. Did you just have a, a working list of these uh, of these stories of these kind of these grudges that you had over time? <laughs> yeah, all all mental. Like I, I didn't I didn't literally have a list. I, I'm not I'm not that crazy that I have like a, a dry erase board with <laughs> with all my grudges yeah. written on it or something. The strings of yarn on the wall. <laughs> I vaguely knew that I had an accumulation of these ideas in my mind, but I didn't have them written down on paper or anything, and I just started at the beginning with the book and just started kind of going from story to story. And just, I'd say like, hmm, let's see what happened. What happened in like uh, 1994? Oh yeah. And then something would, <laughs> would come to mind and I would just. You're able to sort of pinpoint it to that degree? In that I can put my books and comics out in front of me and see the publication date on it. And then that reminds me of the promotion that was related to it. So like um, when, when I was on tour for this specific book, these are the that, stories that happened. Yeah, that's right. When you were going through these and, and, you know, again, especially in the early days when you did have a sense of kind of paying your dues, was there, there this notion of one day I'm going to be able to tell these stories, you know, one day these will be fodder for, for a good book. It hadn't occurred to me until being a cartoonist kind of became sort of my identity to my, to my friends and family. And then what happened was anytime something bad would happen to me, someone, often a family member or a friend would say like, well, it's all good material. And uh, that was, that was like their attempt at consoling me. And usually it would, yeah, it pissed me off. But uh, <laughs> in the back of my mind, I think I was sort of taking note, like, there's a lot of things like that, where someone will give me a criticism, and I'm just, you know, seething with rage about it. But then at the same time, I'm like, well, maybe that's sort of similar to a criticism that another person gave me. And maybe they're both onto something. So I have that reaction a lot. And I think with this this like it'll be good material someday it gave me the idea and also I sort of felt like almost obligated to to make to make it so like because that that has been said to me so often and I had so many of these experiences and I I, yeah at a certain point I really did feel like I, I think that there is a way as corny as it sounds to sort of turn all that pain into something a little more positive. You know, when I look back on my life, I, I now think of it more in terms of this book than, than actually living through those experiences. The moment when you, your identity changed, when you really just considered yourself a, a cartoonist, is that something that you can pinpoint? You know, I, I think at least with my family, it started way before I was, I was publishing work. I think um, uh, just because uh, it was such a consuming hobby of mine. And I think that was, was just sort of my identity, even as a kid. As I got older, like, 
I definitely wasn't like known as a cartoonist uh, among my peers when I was in, in high school or college because I kept it very private. Um, so it was sort of like I had that identity when I was young and it was given to me by my friends and family when I was a kid. And then it sort of kind of went into hibernation, even though I was doing more work, work that's more connected to what I do now. But I was just a lot more private about it. And I, I, it was such a different time. I mean, probably now, if I was in high school, I would be telling everyone, oh, I'm putting out these mini comics and I'm doing comic strips for Tower Records magazine and all these things that probably would be regarded in a, in a different light now. But in late 80s, early 90s, I just felt like, nah, I'm just not going to, I'm not going to tell anybody about this. I don't want to, I don't want to open myself up to anything, anything more. The difference being kind of the, the cultural perception of comics? I think so. Just the cultural perception of, of comics and what it means to be like a quote unquote nerd or uh, what it means to be creative. I mean, you know, I, it's, it's, it has to do with time passing and also it's probably a little more specific to where I was. Like I, I was going to high school in the suburbs of Sacramento and I have friends who at the same time were going to high school in Berkeley and they had a totally different experience. I'm sure we've talked about this before, but I was in Fremont and even in Fremont, cause it was still kind of, I mean, the internet was around, but like there was still all of this stuff that just didn't seem to exist in the suburbs in the same way. Yeah. 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 No, I, I, I kind of, was uh, I, I think I, who knows what my high school in Sacramento is like now, but I really felt felt like at the time that I was trapped the horrible stereotype of you know what is cool, what's uncool, how to how to rise and 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 be liked, and how to get beaten up, and the things that just seem so stereotypical now. And I I'm sure that that wasn't really the case in other parts of the country at that time. What was your sense of comics culture? when you were in high school? I felt like I was one of those guys that you see on the beach with like a metal detector, kind of like uh, looking for, for something underneath the sand. I had, um, I didn't have like a group of friends who were into comics or were making comics. I didn't have any teachers who took me under their wing or anything like that. Um, so it was very, very isolated. And it was really like uh, me going into a comic shop and taking stabs in the dark and being like, hmm, I wonder what, neat stuff is that sounds interesting and just like grabbing things and really in the pre doing the best I could in in the pre-internet world of, of connecting with people and finding things and so I would see a mention of a mini comic in 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 a published comic like yummy fur or something like that and so I would send off money to an address and then I would get a mini comic in the mail and I'd start strike up a correspondence traveling was really useful like if if my family went on a trip and I got to go to a different comic book store like I don't think people really have that experience anymore just because you can buy everything from your from your bedroom now but the idea of like going to a comic shop in San Francisco suddenly there was all this stuff that I hadn't seen before in Sacramento or definitely like going to New York and then going to Jim Hanley's universe or something I was like what is all this stuff I've never seen any of these things before and so it was really yeah just me kind of in the dark bumbling around and buying a lot of crap buying a lot of stuff that I really regretted and that I didn't even like but you know, that's how you, that's how you find the occasional gem. I mean, you know, you mentioned Peter Bag and Chester Brown. So, I mean, you had, you had these glints, you had, you had this idea that there was a world of this stuff out there that, that maybe you weren't completely alone in that. Yeah. And, and that really opened up with, with the discovery of mini comics. Um, I was 
constantly sending money off to someone and checking the mail to see if something was arriving. And when I started making my own mini comics, it really was kind of like a little analog kind of network. It was like kind of almost like the, the primitive version of social media or something like that. But um, I spent a lot of time corresponding uh, and, and exchanging zines and things like that with, yeah, not just cartoonists, but zine people too. And, and I ended up meeting a lot of those people and becoming friends with them too. I'm going to paraphrase here. Um, but, you know, I think, I think you sort of describe in hindsight the comics, your, your comics at the time as being like sad emo comics. <laughs> yeah. That's something that now that you're kind of trying to, to work against. I mean, do you feel like because you had such a specific style and voice that you kind of painted yourself into, into the corner? I was, I was headed in that direction for sure. Uh, I, I, I was definitely at a certain point kind of paralyzed by trying to figure out what was, what people liked about my work. I, I, I was, I was confused about it and I wanted to, to focus in on that, but I didn't know what it was. And I think I, for a while was, was fixated more on, on the superficial things, like what the characters looked like or what the, how the comics were designed or, or things like that. Um, uh, and it, it, it did start to feel like, like a bit of a trap. I mean, I'd say starting with, with shortcomings, every book I've done has been some sort of attempt to kind of do something differently to, 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 to shake things up a little bit, at least within my parameters from what I did before. Um, so, but, but everything I did prior to that was kind of me kind of just going in a straight line, like, okay, you know, the stories in sleepwalk were okay. So let me just do a few more of those and I'll package that up as summer blonde. And I wasn't really consciously thinking about things in terms of books and I wasn't thinking about progression at all. I was just thinking of like, I think, I think it was more like, um, it was sort of my, my training ground. And really I was, I had to, you know, maybe it was necessary. I was focused completely on trying to attain competency and, and, and just to effectively execute something rather than to be able to take one step back and say, okay, let me look at it in terms of not just competency, but style and, and, and tone and, and, and try and evolve. We talk a lot about how we're happy that, Facebook or Twitter didn't exist when we were younger, you know, because right. that when we were like 13 or 15, we didn't have this venue just to put all of our ideas out of the world. But you were pretty young when you were making some of these comics. I mean, you were, you were like a, a late teenager for a lot of this, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's, I mean, not a lot of people have seen it, but there are actually published, you know, semi-published comics that I did when I was, probably about 14. Um, I, I got hooked up with a, with a, like a child safety organization in Sacramento and they commissioned me to do educational comics about, about safety. And I did two issues of that, that actually were printed in huge, huge quantities because they were distributed through the public school system. Um, and then, yeah, the, there's things that I did starting when I was probably 15 or 16 that are, are still today in print from drawn and quarterly, unfortunately. <laughs> Is that sort of stuff hard for you to, to look at at this point? Oh yeah. I never look at it. I mean, I, I, I don't even, I haven't, I haven't even read um, the new book since it came out in, in book form. You don't think there's a value in kind of going back and seeing where you were and, and how you've evolved? There probably is. <laughs> <There> doesn't mean <laughs> you don't I don't want to take advantage of it. Doesn't yeah. mean I do it. Yeah. Um, 
I, I, I think I, I kind of get the same effect by just thinking back on it mentally and, and, and cringing and being like, okay, yeah, I want to do, I want to do something <laughs> that's not quite like that, or I want to do something better than that. Uh, I, I, I think the danger is that I might be egotistical enough that I could go back and look at something and be like, Oh, I kind of like that or something. And then just not feel this. I, I I'm, I'm more compelled to progress and evolve by not looking at the work for whatever reason. Were you purposely shying away from autobio or memoir? I mean, obviously like that's a huge on-ramp for so many cartoonists. Well, I did a little bit of it when I first started out, um, but it was more like an exercise. It was sort of like I read the great autobiographical stuff by people like Chester Brown and, and um, uh, Justin Green, who was actually, I was actually neighbors when I was a teenager. I was neighbors with uh, yeah, Carol Tyler and Justin Green. And I read that kind of work and I thought, oh, there's no way I'm going to put myself out there like that. I'm not going <laughs> to expose myself. I'm not, I don't even want to investigate it on my own. I don't want to look into myself with that kind of scrutiny. And so I did just, they were autobiographical in that they featured me as a character, but they were so uninsightful and so unrevealing that they, they might as well have just been a fictional character. I think I just at some point got locked into this way of thinking of, of myself as, as a fiction writer, as a, as a fictional comic creator. And I felt like for someone with my temperament, it was, maybe the best way to actually express myself and investigate my, my thoughts and, and, and fears and anxieties uh, was through, was through fictional stories. Um, and I think I, I pushed that as far as I've gone so far with, with the book killing and dying. Um, and so when I finished that book, I was totally ready to just keep working in that vein. I, I was like, I've got three more stories just like this ready to go. And then I thought, well, no one, no one wants, no one's going to be lining up for that right now. And I don't really feel like doing that work. It just didn't appeal to me, even though it seemed like it would be easy. It didn't appeal to me. It did well, right? What, what do you mean people w- wouldn't be excited to line up for it? I, I guess that's just, I, I just have a, maybe it's, it's a paranoia, but I have this sense of, of, of my, uh, my limited appeal. Uh, you know, what I do, I'm not like, um, you know, I think of some, you know, you think of like a certain bands who can hop from genre, you, like a favorite of mine is Yola Tango. You know, they, they've done every type of music. And they put an ambient record out this year. Exactly. And and they can put out a folk album and a, and a noise rock, you know. And so they, and they're sort of like a full service band. Like if you're a fan of theirs, you know, each record's a surprise. And even within an album, there's different things to, to interest you. And then there's bands like the Ramones or something like that, that are kind of more monochromatic. And I just have the sense that, you know, I, I haven't built a career that is like where I'm jumping from genre to genre or anything like that. And so I'm very sensitive to just within my parameters of, of, of not wearing out my welcome. Like I, I, I think it's, it's to my benefit that I don't have a book coming out every single year. Um, I'm not ex- extremely prolific. So by the time a new book comes out, people have, have <laughs> maybe regained a little bit more interest in me, uh, you know? Um, and so, yeah, I, 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 killing and dying did, did, did well. And it, it was, it was nicely reviewed, but I just had this feeling that for me and for the readers, it would feel a little bit of that feeling of, Oh, more, more of the same. Um, and that's something that I'm, I'm, 
kind of afraid of 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 offering as as an artist. So you don't necessarily consider yourself as somebody who jumps from genre to genre, but you made a very concerted effort to do that here. Yeah. If the Ramones released a disco album, you weren't afraid of alienating the people who followed you for a you know a very uh, specific or had a very specific idea of what you you bring to the table as a cartoonist. I, I had that thought. I had that thought. I I, I had the feeling like um, that killing and dying. I think was the book of mine that reached the widest audience. And I think that there were people who maybe weren't necessarily comics readers who read a review and, and picked it up and sort of judged it in terms of contemporary short fiction that they read in, in prose form or something like that. And I had this sense that um, not all of them would, would, would follow me with this book and that, that this might be kind of a, a, a niche book for, for, for comics fans or other cartoonists or something like that, 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 that was fine to me. Like I, the, the decisions I make are not necessarily about what's going to get me the biggest audience or what's going to bring in the biggest sales, but more just in terms of what will keep me engaged and what will be interesting to someone who, who, who might be like a long-term fan who's following me from, from book to book. Do you feel like you are less hung up on those notions of, success and, and mainstream appeal than you would have been, you know, 10, 15 years ago? Definitely. Yeah. I, I was, when I was doing the early issues of Optic Nerve, uh, I was working completely in, in response to the industry that I was, that I was mired in. Like I was really thinking of my competition as like image comics and, and, and things like that, you know. I, you were competing against Spawn with Op- Optic Nerve. Yeah, like, <laughs> like literally, because because there was no differentiation. I mean, like, I would be placed alphabetically between, you know, whatever those titles were on the rack, and I just had to sort of like hope that someone would choose mine over over the others. And and also, I really had. Uh, it's it's kind of embarrassing to talk about, but I was very ambitious, and I really had dreams of of having a different kind of audience and and you know to me it was like a great fantasy to like have my work published in book form and actually maybe do a signing in a bookstore instead of a comic book store um uh to say nothing of you know working for the new yorker or something like that why is that embarrassing well because i don't know if it's embarrassing but um you know it's it's the 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 storyline of my career is is more palatable to people if it's like and then this thing dropped in his lap and then this strange turn of events happened and someone asked him to do this as opposed to me like hungrily like clawing my way up and, and like trying to get get things. <laughs> you don't want to look back in your career and think of it as a series of, of lucky breaks. I mean, you, you do want to think that you work towards a goal and, and you earned it. Yeah, it's it's. I don't know. It's, it's hard for my, for my personality. It's like, um, you know, I'm very hypocritical in that way that I, I can be very judgmental if I see a cartoonist who I think is like very concerned with their career and self-promotion and, and they're trying to really climb in various ways. And then at the same time, I look at my career and I can, say, I can point to all the times that I, I did just that, but maybe just with a veneer of, of humility or something like that. And you literally just released a book that's like about, in, to some degree, about those things. It's to some degree sort of like about the hustle and about really just every, every kind of embarrassing moment along the way. Yeah, I, I was forcing myself to, to kind of look, look at myself in a way that wasn't flattering to me, that, that wasn't comfortable. Um, I, my, my main criteria in picking the material 
for this book, first of all, was, was it funny? At least the, the, the first section of the book is, is it funny and will it relate? Will people understand it? Um, but also in, in concert with that, I was really forcing myself to go into areas that by my standards were uncomfortable. Again, this is not, this is not Justin Green material. This is not <laughs> Chester Brown material, but, um, but you know, in, in, in its own way. Uh, yeah. I, I was, I was delving into stuff that, that was hard for me to, to depict in some ways. Do you get the sense that this is the beginning of something larger for you or does this just really kind of feel like a possibly one off in your career? Well, it won't be, you know, the next book is not going to be a continuation of it. I'll, I'll say that. Um, but I, I, I really enjoyed making this book probably more than, than any, any book I've made since, since I was a teenager. Um, I don't know how I'll judge the relative worth of, of the result down the line, but um, just in terms of the process of creating it, this was an experience that I actually enjoyed and I didn't feel tortured by. Um, And, 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 you know, my wife is, is, is a good barometer and she was, she was really noting that I was, enjoying the process more than usual. And I was in a better mood at the end of the day. And I was, um, and a lot of it has to do with the speed that I, I created the pages. Um, it can be very, very mentally and emotionally taxing to work in the mode that I have in the past where it takes me like a week to complete a page. It just feels like, you know, your real life around you is moving at a, at a, at a breakneck pace and you're just barely inching along at the drawing board. Um, and with this book, because I allowed myself to loosen up and, and, and work in a different style, I was at, at, at my best point getting a page a day done, which, which felt great to me. I get the sense, though, that you were almost maybe preemptively apologetic for the fact that it looked a little bit looser. I mean, just, just, just a packaging, the fact that it you know, looks like a, a notebook is kind of a, a not so subtle wink to the audience to tell them, yeah, this is maybe going to be a little bit looser and a little bit sketchier <laughs> than I usually do. Absolutely. That's, you hit the nail on the head. And that's why I fought so hard for that extremely difficult and expensive production on it. Because like you said, I, I didn't want a single person to, to, to flip open the book and go, oh my God, you know. <laughs> what, what happened what, to what happened? Yeah. He's losing it. Yeah. This, isn't, this isn't the guy who does New Yorker covers. You don't want people to think you're you're phoning it in. Which, yeah, which often happens with cartoonists as they get older. So, yeah, I want... And just creative people in general. True. And so I want it, you're right. Um, the, the, the book design, in addition to trying to make something that would be interesting and, and encourage people to buy the real book, uh, it was, like you said, uh, kind of a, a signal from, <laughs> from, from the starting point that... that it was intentional that the drawing style was done to look like a sketchbook. I was watching the interview that you did with Seth recently, and it, it was great from, from the standpoint of, the, I think the thing that he really brought to the table, and this is like, this is as clear in his work as, as anyone else's, that maybe he was somebody who had sort of set up his art based on a, I don't know if arbitrary is the right way to describe it, but a very, a very sort of stringent set of rules. And it wasn't until later in his career that he was really able to kind of, to loosen up. Mm -hmm. Do do you, do you feel that way about your, your own work that maybe, you know, because you came up at a certain time and because you had a certain set of tools at your disposal, that maybe you were 
setting kind of almost arbitrary parameters for yourself? Yeah, I felt very um, limited and sort of hemmed in by what I thought were the rules and the proper tools and the proper way of doing everything. Um, and to me, uh, letting go of that and, and, and almost intentionally breaking those rules um, has been uh, kind of a transformative experience for me in, in recent years. Um, mainly, I would say it started happening with, uh, with killing and dying and, and, and definitely with this book. And yeah, I, I definitely recommend it for uh, cartoonists who are trying to do what I do and have like a long, a long running career where you go through phases and do different types of books and things like that. But to just really break out of that prison of, the proper tools, the proper method, the proper paper, all that stuff. It's clear how that manifests itself in this book, but, but I think it's harder. I I, granted, I haven't read it in a couple of years, but it's hardest to sort of see that in killing and dying. Can you, can you point to what the change was for that book? Yeah. A a lot of that book was drawn. um, I think because a lot of it is in color and I colored it in the, in the same way that I, I, often color my illustrations. Uh, it had, it seemed more consistent, but you know, prior to that book, everything I did, I would, I would pencil it out on, on expensive Bristol board. And then I would ink it with a fancy, uh, brush and, and these kind of nibs that you have to dip in, in ink, um, and some drafting pens. And then with, uh, killing and dying, I really, as much as possible, put those tools in a drawer and, and, went to the local stationery store and, and grabbed things and tried to work with them. And so like uh, the story that's called Go Owls was done with, with felt tip markers, um, which, you know, always seemed like a no-no. Um, but I just, I was happy with the way it came out. And then the story that I think got the strongest response in the whole book, which is, is the title story, um, the whole thing is drawn with just a mechanical pencil. There's no ink in it at all, except for, uh, for the lettering. But the, um, but all the artwork is just uh, each panel was drawn on a sheet of typing paper with uh, just a regular number two mechanical pencil. And that's it. This is probably the case with a lot of different creative pursuits, but I, I, I've definitely noticed it in, in comics that the people who really spend the most time on a page are the ones who tend to be jealous of those cartoonists <laughs> for, to whom things just sort of like come naturally. Yeah. Yeah, well, that I, I was I was that guy for for many years. I was, um, you know, uh, drawing on giant pieces of board with my fancy brush and everything, taking a week to do a page. And then I started looking at people like um, John Porcellino or or Jeffrey Brown, um, um, even Gabrielle Bell, who wasn't quite as loose as those guys. But she has her sketchbook, though. I mean, yeah. she, she does some pretty quick stuff too. Yeah, exactly. And, and I just was so envious. I was like, how are these guys, how, how do they get away with it? It's like, like, it's like they're cheating and yet I enjoy reading the books. So what difference does it make? You know, it was, um, so I was, yeah, I was, but I think at the time I was feeling that, that uh, at its strongest, I was like halfway through uh, the book shortcomings. And so I was like, oh God, I've got, you know, 
two more years of this shit. <laughs> you, you can't, you can't just like stop midstream. You can't right. just like, people will be like, wait a second after page 50, <laughs> the drawing just isn't as good. Adrian yeah. is just totally checked out from the end of this book. Yeah. That, that, and, and that's, that's a hundred percent why I never have, and probably never will do one of these massive uh, 20 year graphic novel projects. I just, uh, I, I wouldn't be able to maintain that consistency without losing my mind. How is the process actually different for you? I mean, is is it just a matter of telling yourself that I'm done with this? It's time to move on. Yeah, I mean, you sort of you sort of set the the, the parameters and the rules of, of of what you're doing for for each specific project. And so, like with with the, the new book, um, yeah, I just did a bunch of sample pages leading up to actually doing the work, and I I found a nice small size to work at, and and a cheap kind of paper that I didn't care if, if I ripped it up and threw it away instead of having to do a million paste-ons and, and whiteouts and all that kind of stuff. And um, I just, I, I, yeah, I chose one, one pen to use for the whole thing and, um, and, and just kept reminding myself, like the goal is to do a page a day. And I didn't always, I didn't always land there. Um, but if you have that in your mind, it's kind of like um, the clock is ticking. And uh, I, I just was trying to tap into that tradition that um, the, 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 the original cartoonist, like the newspaper cartoonist had, which is you got your deadline and it's just got to yeah. be good, good enough. You know, I think a lot of us of my generation had this luxury of, of no deadlines, no editors, and the perfectionism can really overtake you. And so I was really trying to get back into thinking of this as the sort of cheap commercial art form that it, that it started out as, you know, like get, get something done every day and, and make sure it's good enough and, and hope it's, you know, decent. And if it's not, then you have the next day. I think this, this speaks to you as a person. And, and I, I can only say this because I, I think this also speaks to me as a person, but that in order, you know, there's an irony that in order to kind of loosen the parameters, you have to basically set a new, set of parameters right yeah. in order in order to get looser with your work you have to like set a arbitrary deadline for yourself yeah and also uh you know i was i was unlike yeah i guess unlike pretty much any other book i've done this was one that was really conceived of as as a book as a complete thing um and i had a vision of what it would look like from 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 the start and so i didn't yeah i didn't want to feel like oh okay midway through i'm going to start doing it as a watercolor painting or something like that you had an idea of the the product as a book but it does seem like the the storytelling or the content or the format kind of evolved over time yeah except the uh i i didn't i didn't work in a vacuum and just start drawing the first page and then the next page it really the way i describe i or at least i hint at how the book was created at the end of the book is 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 very much true um I kind of saw the whole thing at, at, at once. I saw, I knew where I wanted it to end up and I knew how the, the, the lead up to it would relate to, to that. And so it was, uh, yeah, it wasn't written out, but it was completely planned out in my mind. And that's why I did not want to let advanced pages of it get out. And I didn't want people to start seeing previews of it because I really wanted someone to have the book in their hands. And I wanted them to read the whole story um, because I thought there's kind of like two parts of this and both felt incomplete. Like the first part feels very light and jokey. And the last part feels kind of just 
you know, more heavy and emotional. And I thought they just, they really needed to be together. And you didn't tell DNQ that you were working on it in the beginning? Yeah, I just, I, I finished Killing and Dying and just kind of went off the grid with them for a while. And normally we, we very quickly, in, in the past, what would happen was while I was on tour for a book, when I came to Montreal to do an event, I would go out to, to breakfast with, with Peggy and Tom or, or Chris when he was running it and, and sort of talk about what the next book is and get set up with contracts and, and an advance and all that stuff. And this one, I just told them, I, I don't know, I, I, let's just not, let's just, I'll be in touch. And I just kind of did other things. Um, and then I just started working on it um, privately before I even talked to them. And I think I was about halfway done with the book before I even told them that it existed. Because I wanted to work with the knowledge that no one was expecting it, that no one had paid for it, that there was no deadline, and that if it started to be really horrible, I could just throw it away and, and no one would say what happened to the book you were working on. Have you gotten that far down the road with something that you just had to trash? No, I, I mean, by the time I actually talked to John Cordley, I knew obviously that I was going to go th- see it through. <laughs> you did not have a ton of faith in this project early on. I, had, I, I, I wanted to do it and I knew that I was going to enjoy it. And I, I knew that 10, 10 friends of mine were going to, get a kick out of it. But I wasn't sure that it was something that John and Quarterly was going to be interested in. That was, that was my main concern. But I didn't want to cater to second guessing what, what they wanted. I wanted to just make the book that I wanted. And, and if they were interested, they, they would have first dibs on it, of course. It must feel like a luxury to be able to do that. I mean, obviously, you've got very pragmatic concerns. You know, you live in New York City, You've yeah. got two children. Like, yeah. you, can't, you can't just like work on a project and not have it come out. That's true. That's true. And there's a little bit of uh, cockiness to that because it's sort of, I guess, in the back of my mind, I thought like someone will, will want to put it out. If John Quarterly passes on it, maybe I could, I could find another place for it to exist or something, or I could self-publish it and still sell enough to make it worthwhile or, or something like that. Um, and and yeah, and definitely by the time I, I, I reached out to them, it was, it was uh, largely because I was ready to, to take a little bit of an advance. <laughs> it felt experimental to some degree, but you, you knew you had something there. I was enjoying the process. I, I, I was happy with the way it was coming out. Um, and um, yeah, that, that was, that was, that was, those were my main criteria. And then all the other issues were sort of, well, I'll, I'll figure it out if, if, John and Quarterly doesn't like it, I'll find some other place for it. Or, you know, if it doesn't sell well, then that's okay. And I can, I can jump onto something else shortly thereafter. By the end of Killing and Dying, were you not enjoying the experience? The whole process of creating Killing and Dying was difficult for me, both because the artwork was a lot more meticulous and most of it was in color. It was varied from story right. to story. Yeah, yeah, but especially the, the the coloring aspect, which involves a computer, uh, I, I just don't enjoy that. Like, I don't enjoy spending a whole day clicking on on shapes to to color a page of comics, um, <laughs> especially like the title story, which had so many little panels per per page. Um, but also on top of that, the the span of my life that that book encompasses involved um, my wife uh, basically being unemployed so that she could uh, complete her PhD. Um, and 
the birth of both of our children and everybody being in a small Brooklyn apartment 24 hours a day. Um, so for a lot of reasons, uh, completing that book was very, very difficult. And, and I, I was in no mood to, to jump back into a similar situation. What's your relationship to making art right now that everybody is quite literally locked indoors? It's, it's, it's been tough. I would say that uh, I've gotten a lot less accomplished in the last five months than, than, than I was hoping to. I, I was talking to Bob Skoriak about this last night, and I sort of, the, the analogy I keep coming back to is that that episode of The Twilight Zone where... Oh, all the time in the world? Yeah, exactly. Where like everybody disappears and this guy gets super excited about having all the time in the world to read. And I sort of, I think about that in terms of, you know, cartoonists, they, they tend to be, obviously Bob is not, this is not the case with him, but they tend to be very solitary. And like, you would think that, that they would get kind of, not that uh, granted anybody wants a situation, but, you know, kind of excited to have all the time in the world to to work on comics, but it never works out like that. Uh, Well, and also I I did not have all the time in the world because I had two kids who were home from school every day. Um, And, um, and so that, that, that's what made me change things. I, I think if I was, Living alone during this time, it would be hard emotionally, but I think I would have been productive. I think I would have, I would have, you know, I might be one of those annoying people who now has a brand new book that they started in, in quarantine. Um, but, you know, um, because, because that would have been my defense against the loneliness and, and, and the anxiety would be to, to bury myself in work. But as a parent, I really didn't have that as an option. And so... Um, I've been able to do some stuff, um, but um, I definitely have not had the energy to decide, here's my next big book project, and I'm going to dive into it right now, because I, I, don't, I don't trust my judgment right now. <laughs> Once you kind of reacquainted yourself with the joy of making comics, do you get a sense that you will be able to continue to tap into that to some degree on future projects? I think, yeah. I think what's totally crucial for me is to work on other things and then feel excited about coming back to comics. Um, I'm trying to do some uh, screenwriting right now, which I'm enjoying, but it also brings its own complications that make me excited about some of the the freedom that I have with comics. I I don't think I'm going to be able to keep making every book I do like a total switch up and a total departure, but I like being able to at least oscillate between various modes. And so like right now it, it appeals to me to do art. That's like very different from what I did in, in the loneliness of long distance cartoonist and do stuff that's very illustrative and, and detailed and colorful. And, and um, that sounds really fun to me now. It, 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 it was not appealing, you know, when I finished killing and dying, but now after having worked on this book, um, yeah, it sounds that sounds nice to me. Is the idea of switching things up is that what keeps bringing you back to things like screenwriting? Well, screenwriting is unfortunately a thing that has um, been like a secret hobby and a secret desire of mine since I was a little kid. And in some ways, I wish I didn't have that. And I'm envious of people who are just like completely thrilled with being a cartoonist and all if only they had more time they would get more comics done and that's all they want to do obviously you're friends with with dan you must see what he does and and you know and he, he's able to i mean he's maybe not doing as much anymore but he has been able to successfully straddle that line 
Yeah, no, I mean, in many ways, uh, Dan has been like uh, such a role model for me and, and that includes how he's toggled between those worlds. Um, yeah, I, 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 I am lucky enough to have been sort of, uh, to a degree uh, along, along for the ride through all his movie projects. And, um, you know, even, even at, at their worst points or the most frustrating points, I was always very envious of that experience. And I thought like, uh, yeah, that I could see why that's annoying, but still you're making a movie. And if I was able to purge myself of that kind of fantasy and that, that desire to work in that business, I totally would because I would be a much more focused and, and, and satisfied person because I, then I could just work on comics all the time. But uh, unfortunately I've just been a lifelong movie fan and a TV fan and there's, this uh, little part of me that I just can't, I can't shake. Are you able though to take a step back and realize how incredibly lucky you have been to be able to make a living doing comics and drawing covers for the New Yorker? Uh, yes. And that is a point that gets brought up a lot by people who are slightly annoyed with this book because it seems like, you know, how, how dare you complain about anything? Um, and of course, uh, yes. And, yeah, and I, I hope I hope that people come away from the book thinking that I'm not whining about the way my career has ended up or or the way things have turned out or anything like that. And that the book really is a lot more of an investigation into my weird personality and my sensitivities and and my easily wounded ego and and things like that. Not so much. I think it's easy for people to describe it as like a series of grudges or like I'm getting vengeance on people who once, <laughs> who once everyone uh, who slighted you in the past. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's I, I really don't feel, I didn't feel vindicated. I didn't feel like I, I, that if that was my goal, I d- definitely didn't succeed. Yeah. I mean, I don't think anyone can read a story like the one about talking to the reporter and then having, you know, a very, I mean, we, we've all had bathroom incidents and I, I don't think, I don't think anyone can see that as you taking your grudges out on people. I mean, right. obviously, like, it was important for you to kind of make yourself the butt of the joke as well. Yeah. And and I, I want, I, I hope that people sort of look for that throughout the book, because um, uh, a lot of attention has been paid to, to a story where um, uh, another fairly well-known cartoonist doesn't say my name at an award ceremony. And, um, you know, uh, people think that the point of the story is to like get back at him, but, but really I I find his behavior a little bit confounding, but it's, it's mine, which is much more embarrassing where in my mind, I'm thinking that he and I are going to become friends. And then suddenly I'm literally holding back tears in the middle of an award ceremony because my feelings were so hurt. (laughs) Were you able to, to kind of exercise some of these demons by getting them down on paper? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, I think time had already done a lot of the work for me. You know, none of them were so painful that I was like traumatized trying to revisit them. Um, and, but, but yeah, turning them into, into comics has actually transformed my memories of the experience to a degree in that now I really think back on those anecdotes in terms of the comic version of it rather than actually <laughs> living through it. <laughs> 